Welcome to the tabernacle. All right. I hope in Manistee they're a lot more excited than they are in Buckley, uh, but it's going to be a good weekend. We're talking about God's wrath this weekend. Uh, maybe that's why it's a little, huh, but uh, hopefully we'll get excited as we go along. Uh, before we get uh, going with the, the message for this weekend, we're in our series in 1 Samuel. We'll actually uh, be looking at two chapters uh, this weekend, both chapters 5 and 6, because it's one continuous story. Uh, but before we get there, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the weekend uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, despite COVID, despite the quarantine, despite all of the world events, we're going to go ahead and have the big give again. You remember the Big Give? You're not excited about that either. All right. Big Give is something we've been doing the last couple of years here at the Tabernacle, and I'm excited about it every year, not because I'm just a preacher and some of us have this attitude, if the preacher's going to talk about money, that's why they're excited. No. It's an opportunity for us uh, to show our gratitude to God for what he's done. And uh, I don't know about you, but this week, it's been a tough week. It's been a heavy week for me personally. And uh, I was just reminded again of how much God has done for me and how much God has blessed us as a church, individuals, uh, most of all for Jesus. And so um, as a leadership, we felt like, hey, there's still some things that we have to do. There's some things that match with our mission and our vision. And so the big give... Uh, That's an offering on that weekend. Uh, All of the offerings collected online, both campuses, all locations for that weekend are going to go towards what we call the big give. And it's, it's perfect to put it right before Thanksgiving, right before we spend all our money on things that we don't care about. On Black Friday uh, or Black Saturday, now it's pretty much a black month it feels like, Um, we're asking uh, the tabernacle to begin to pray about what you might do. Now, more information is going to be coming out about the specifics, but what we've decided to do as a church this year is follow the same model many of us try to teach our children, that whenever you're blessed with any money, whether it's a paycheck, your allowance, uh, uh, some money from grandma and grandpa, you should always split it at least three ways. Part of it, you should decide you're going to give away. Part of it, you're going to save or invest. And then part of it, you're going to spend. And so whatever comes in that weekend for our church, the tabernacle, this one church in two locations, we're going to do exactly that. Part of it, one third of it, we're going to give away like we did last year, except we're going to give more of it away. So 33.33, I'm not the math guy, right? Someone else will do the math, but 33% of that we're going to give away to ministries and missionaries, outreach stuff. Can we get excited about that again? Yeah. We'll give you a full list. It's, it, it was exciting last time around, and, and we got such a blessing out of that, we're going to do it again. Uh, and then a third of it, uh, we're going to save, or in this case, invest. We're going to invest in our future. Uh, many people at the Tabernacle are super concerned about wanting to pay down debt as quickly as possible, so one third of it's going to go to debt reduction. So all of you Dave Ramseyites, stand up and cheer. Four of you, Awesome. 
That's all right. One third of it's going there. Whether you're for him or not, it doesn't really matter. One third of it's going to invest in our future. And then a third of it is going to go to some much needed upgrades uh, with our facility, specifically in Manistee. So Manistee, I hope you're listening. Uh, There's some things, some big projects we have to take care of. Uh, The roof, that's important. Uh, The parking lot, that's just as important. So would you pray about that? Can we do that? Uh, I, I know it's hard to get excited sometimes when we're in October and you're like, oh, here we go again. But hey, it's, it's something that God has used powerfully in the life of our church. So I want to start with that. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention is uh, uh, gratitude for the church. For those of you that have been praying for my brother-in-law, uh, who suffered a massive stroke. He's a part of our church. And uh, uh, thank you for your prayers. I'd ask you to continue that. And I'd also, on a personal note, um, ask if you would pray for my parents. Uh, both of them, uh, found out in the last 48 hours, have contracted uh, the coronavirus. And uh, so mom, dad, love you, and we're praying for you. And uh, if you would remember them in your prayers, that would be cool. So without much further ado, let's get after it. Last week, Ben did an outstanding job of covering in chapter four how God's people made a huge mistake. And their huge mistake was they treated God like an object instead of a person. And specifically, they treated one of the sacred things that God had given them, a symbol of his promise to his people, the Ark of the Covenant, and they treated it like their mascot. They treated it like a good luck charm. Things didn't go well for them in a battle with the Philistines, so someone came up with the bright idea, hey, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, and then we're going to win for sure. And then they lost it. They lost it. They lost that wooden chest that's covered in gold that contained the Ten Commandments that had been passed down from Moses. It contained Aaron's staff that God had used to perform miracles in the wilderness. And it contained a jar of manna, right? That symbol of God's provision for them when he brought them out of slavery. So the staff symbolized that God leads and and. and The jar of manna symbolized that God provides for his people. And the law, the symbol of our obedience and our commitment to him, they just lost the whole box. This was possibly the lowest point in Israel's history. In fact, if you look through the rest of the Old Testament, there's only one other point that's even close to being that low. And that's when, uh, you know, the Babylonians came and overran them and dragged them all into captivity in Babylon. But that's where we pick up the story. Israel still has no king. The Ark of the Covenant is lost. It's bad days. So if you have a Bible, we're going to start in chapter 5. Now it's important for us to understand that there was no power in the Ark itself. The power belonged to the God of the covenant that the Ark represented. And in the Old Testament, there were specific rules about the Ark of the Covenant. That... You couldn't touch it. If anyone were to touch it, they would die. When it was transported, they had to use the long poles. So those guys that you know, took off the lid, they should have just exploded right there. But, you know, Hollywood, whatever. But there were other things. You couldn't even look upon it. It had to be covered in a shroud because this was like a symbol of the glory of the Lord. And it was the glory of Israel that they were the chosen ones of the Lord. And this was a symbol of their commitment to him and his commitment to them. And they lost it. The Philistines have it. But God is still God. 
And so let's pick up the story now with that maybe in our minds, even though it's, an, eh, it's not the best, but whatever, the face melting would have been better. But chapter five, it says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now, let's pause right there. Dagon is their god or one of their gods. He's an idol, right? In fact, you'll remember back in the book of Judges where Samson, uh, at his death, when he killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his life, it's, they had brought him out as a festival to their idol, Dagon. So it's the same Philistines, it's the same God, and what they tried to do is just, hey, let's put the ark as kind of like this trophy of war, and let's put it in there next to our idol. But what happens next, what we just read, was pretty comical, is, you know, they're like, hey, this is pretty great. We got the Ark of the Covenant right here, Dagon. And they come in and Dagon's fallen down during the night because gods are for real God. Remember, not the Ark, but the God that the Ark of the Covenant represents. And so Dagon's fallen down. It's like a national incident. Hey, don't tell anybody. This is really rather awkward. Did you set it up? I don't, you know, I mean, I'm just imagining these guys are trying to cover for it. They set Dagon back up, come back the next day. Now Dagon's fallen down again, but this time he's lost his head. He's lost his hands. They're starting to get the picture. Verse six, it says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. That's the city they're in. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they're starting to connect the dots. And scripture, and we don't believe there's any wasted words in scripture, tells us the reason this is happening. It says the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. They've been afflicted. People are dying. We'll find out. People are being afflicted with tumors. The the city and the territory is being overrun with, the translation says, mice. But we can assume mice, rats, rodents. It was some kind of bubonic plague that is destroying them. Hey, when did this begin? Well, you know, all that crash in the night with Dagon when we put the ark in there? This has happened since we put the ark in. And they're starting to connect the dots. It says, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And so they come up with a plan and the plan is very 
simple. They gather all the lords together and they say, uh, let's move them to a different city. So first they send him to the Philistine city of Gath. Same thing happens. Gath is like, why'd you send him here? We don't want it. They send it on to the next town, Ekron. Same thing happens. Wherever the ark of God goes in the land of the Philistines, men are dying. People are afflicted. They're terrified. These horrible tumors, the mice, the rats. So verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So at first they thought, hey, we're just going to take the ark of the Lord and add it to all our pantheon of other gods and goddesses. But then they realized that there was something different about this one. Their idols are bowing down. Their idols are crumbling. They're being afflicted. Uh, There's a plague going throughout the city. People are dying. They're terrified. They've passed it from city to city. And now they get together and say, that's it. It needs to go back to its people. So we pick up the story in chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, or the diviners, and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. So at first, they started by calling the political leaders. Hey, what should we do? And they're like, send it to that city. We don't like them anyways, right? Maybe it'll change the electoral map. All right, now you're with me, right? And then that city didn't like it, and they sent it to the other city and said, those people in Gath are trying to kill us. And then now they're starting to figure out this is more than just politics. And so instead, they call their priests, and they call the diviners like these magicians and these medicine men together. What shall we do? And they come up with this plan. They say, let's send it back to Israel, but by all means, don't send it alone. If you read more in chapter six, we're not going to read all of it in the interest of time, but they come up with this idea. Let's send it with a guilt offering. They realize that taking the ark was wrong. And they realized that the God of this ark was angry. And they realized that they were guilty. Now make no mistake, they're not turning to Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel. They're not turning to him, but they're afraid of him. And so they're like, whatever you do, don't send it back empty handed. You got to send it with a guilt offering. So they come up with this plan. These are the magic men, the diviners or whatever you want to call them, the sorcerers. They say, get a brand new cart and two milk cows that have never taken a yoke before and put these two milk cows in the yoke, pulling this cart, lock their calves away, put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart and then put our guilt offering. And the guilt offering, this cracked me up all week studying for it, is going to be five golden mice 
representing each one of the Philistine lords in each one of the cities, and five golden tumors. Think about that. I've never had a tumor. Is it a big tumor? Is it a little tumor? Right? I don't want to make light of these people's misery and affliction, but it's a little comical, right? We're going to put a symbol of what is afflicting us. These golden rats. We're going to get some people in here and the sculptors are going to you know, make a model out of their tumor. And now oh, we're going to use that tumor. That's a really gross one. Make that one out of gold. You guys are weird. And they decide they'll send it back. Something interesting in chapter 6 is they say, you know, we know what happened in Egypt when Pharaoh hardened his heart. Let's not be like them. This God's hand is really heavy. So let's send it back. And here was the plan. These two milk cows were going to pull the Ark of the Covenant on a brand new cart with the guilt offerings they'd put on there. And they said, if the cart goes back to the land where the Ark is from, we'll know that this is related to their God. But if he comes back to where their calves are, then we'll know this was just a coincidence. So don't mistake this for faith. They just want to get out from underneath God's heavy hand and they know they're guilty. So verse 10 of chapter 6. The men did so and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway. Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And so do you see this picture? The Philistine lords, these worshipers of idols, these worshipers of Dagon, they've got their cart with the two milk cows and they send them on their way and there's a parade behind them. They want to see where these cows are going to go and they don't return to their calves who are pent up. It's like a homing signal. It's like a GPS. Better yet, it's a for real God that leads this cart all the way to the border where there's a town, Beth Shemesh, that's in Israel. And when the Philistine lords get there, they're like, huh, get a load of this. And what's interesting to me is you would think at that moment, they would say, oh, that must be the real God. But they don't. They return to the land of the Philistines. Presumably, they return to the worship of Dagon. And that's not like many people in 2020. Come to church, get a Bible, join a study, go to Foundry, hang out for a little while, hedge our bets, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of church on Sunday, a little bit of astrology in the newspaper on the afternoon. A little bit of church on Sunday, a little bit of good luck charm throughout the week. 
we can go even further. Some people come because it's one of many religions and they just want to keep all the gods happy. That happens here. It's the same with the lords of the Philistines. But it says that the Israelites, they're in the wheat or they're reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they look up and lo and behold, here comes oxen pulling a cart and they know what's on the back of it. That is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's returned to our people. You remember in the last chapter when they were talking about the glory has departed? The glory of Israel has departed because we lost the Ark of the Covenant? They must have been just as excited because now the glory is coming back. In fact, in the verses that follow, immediately what these Israelites did is is they get control of those oxen and that cart and they sacrifice the oxen. They build a huge fire with the wood from the cart and they just have a church service right there. Huge bonfire, sacrifice, praise breaks out, rejoicing in Israel, the ark has returned. It's the symbol of the covenant and presumably it's unscathed. It did a lot of damage to the Philistines, but now we've got it back, right? God hasn't left us. Isn't that a cool picture? They were unfaithful, but God was still faithful. There's a sermon right there I chose not to preach this weekend. They'd been unfaithful. They'd treated God like a mascot. They treated him like a good luck charm. There was no relationship whatsoever. And even though they were unfaithful, God was faithful. Here comes the ark. Back to its home. But there's a little footnote in verse 19. And it gives the story, instead of a yes, it gives it a huh. Verse 19, it says, And he, speaking of God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down. And take it up with you. So you see how the story kind of ends with a. Huh. The Philistines were afflicted. They weren't worshipers of God. They set it up in their temple. They're afflicted. They're terrified. Get it away from us. Pass it around from city to city. Send it back. Send it away. And instead of turning to the God that's displaying this power among them, they return to what they were doing. Israelites rejoice. It's back. Let's have a barbecue sacrifice. We're super excited. Except God struck down 70 of them. For what? For looking upon the ark? Now that's not the point. And, and, and you can have fun at your fight club trying to figure out, is it because they looked on the ark with pride? Yeah. Look at us. Instead of repentance. Or maybe they looked upon the ark with contempt. Or maybe it was just the fact that they weren't supposed to look upon the ark at all. Regardless, God's heavy hand is against them too. And they're God's people. I don't get that part. Not going to lie to you. 
Why, with the rejoicing, they're trying to do the right thing, 70 made the mistake of looking upon that symbol of God's covenant promise, that symbol of God's power, really, and they're struck dead. So much so that Scripture records this. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And, and, and the chapters end with them saying the same thing that the Philistines did. Hey, they sent message to another town. The ark is back. Come and take it. Come and take it away. So what is this antiquated story from a long time ago in a place far away from us with customs and rituals we don't even know. What does it have to do with 2020? What does it have to do with my situation? What does it have to do with my life, with our life, with our church, with Northern Michigan, with North America? I think the lesson is an important one. And it's important for us All of us, regardless of our age, regardless of how long we've been a Christian, regardless of what we believe, even if you believe this is true, the story is clear. No one escapes God's heavy hand. No one. God's hand is a heavy hand. I remember being a kid and the first time I felt my father's, or that I can remember my father's hand, vividly remembering my father's hand. And it was a heavy hand, but it was saving me. I was, we were fishing together. I don't remember where. It was somewhere around Cincinnati, Ohio, when we were back from the mission field. And I was falling face first. And my dad couldn't swim, and neither could I at the time. And I was falling into Lake Pond, wherever we were. It might as well have been Lake Superior, as far as I was concerned, because I was about four And I remember my father's heavy hand like on my shoulder, the back of my neck and literally picking me up and putting me. My dad's hand was pretty heavy. God's hand. Now that's a heavy hand. And he's a holy God and he's a just God. And scripture tells us that this holy and just God hates sin. That His wrath and his anger burn against sin. Not just the big sins, also the little sins. Anything that doesn't match up with God's perfection and God's law, God's standard, there's this roiling wrath that burns against it. And if we get anything from the story, whether you're a Philistine or one of God's people, is that no one escapes God's heavy hand. And when his hand comes down in judgment, there's no escape. It says in the book of Revelation that at the end of all things, when uh, God comes to, it says to churn the winepress of the fury of his wrath, right? I made sure I memorized that because I always like to say that. He churns the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, right? You guys not going there with me? It's a, it, there's a real verse. Do you know what it says? It says, people in those days, they'll run for the hills. They'll run for the mountains. They'll run for the caves. And when God's wrath is being poured out on sinful mankind, the people in those caves and the mountains will pray that the mountains will fall on them. 
rather than face the wrath of God. No one escapes God's heavy hand. Whether you're in the church, whether you're outside the church, whether you have good works or you don't have good works, the Philistines experienced it. The Israelites experienced it. It's interesting to me that they prepared a guilt offering when they sent the ark back. You know, guilt is a universal feeling. It's not just North American guilt. It's not just Christian guilt. You know, I'm thinking right now of friends of mine that have no belief in any God and yet they feel the need to do good works. Why? You know, we could sell that thing or you know what? We could donate it to Habitat for Humanity or, you know, do some good works with that. Yeah, yeah, we should. Why? Because deep inside every human being is written on our hearts that there's a for real God and we must all give an account to that God. And I think deep inside we all know that no one escapes God's heavy hand. That's why when people are on their deathbed, they call for pastors and priests. Even if they've never stepped foot inside a church. And I've been to more than my share of deathbeds where you're struggling for the right words with someone that doesn't even know their way around faith or this book. It says in Numbers chapter 32 that surely your sin will find you out. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you guys believe that? Am I scaring too many people? You see, we've come up with this idea that God is something to be tamed or God is something that we can fashion in our image. God is something that we can treat however we want or look upon or act in any way that we care to. And we forget that he's a holy God. He's a just God. He's the only one qualified to judge. There's no escaping his heavy hand. There was a quote that I came across recently from a pastor. His name is Vadi Bauckham. And uh, it just struck me. I want to read it to you. He says, I despise the picture that's painted in our culture of a sissified, needy Jesus. He's just yearning for you. He's longing for you. He wants friendship and relationship with you. He needs you. Oh, you're breaking his heart. He says, no. He's going to break you. Why? Because he's a holy God. And no one escapes God's heavy hand. What does that have to do with Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Got a hustle. John chapter 10. Jesus speaking. Hundreds, maybe a thousand years later. And when the Son of God, God in flesh, came to earth... This is what Jesus said. Verse 27 of John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. 
See that? Jesus says, my hand can't snatch him out of there. Father's hand can't snatch him out of there. And then he finishes by saying, I and the Father are one. Jesus and this terrible God are one. Same God. Jesus says, my sheep who follow me and obey me and they know my voice and they love me and they worship me, they're in my hand. No one can take them from me. No one can take them from my Father's hand because I and the Father are one. You see, only God can save you from God. You didn't think I was just going to go all night about no one can escape the heavy hand of God, right? It's got to be some good news. There is good news. God can save you from God. Only God can save you from God. Not your good works, not how much you give to the big give. Not your prayers, not our efforts, not our good behavior. Not our trophies, not our legacy, not how long we live, not how we vote. Only God can save you from God. And that's why God sent Jesus. You see, I think stories like this in the Old Testament, sometimes we try too hard to look for some other alleys or some other teachings. It's really simple. This is a holy God and his hand is heavy against Philistines and his hand is heavy against sinful Israelites. His hand is heavy against sinful northern Michigan people of which I am one. But God saves me from God through Jesus Christ. God saves me from God because Jesus is God. That's why I can say only God can save me from God. And only God can save you from God. Who can stand before the Lord? One who stands behind Jesus. Who can stand before the Lord? One who realizes that I deserve nothing. He's holy. He's just. But because of Jesus, I know that he's also merciful and good. And because he took my sin on a cross, I can have life. And I don't have to pay him back with golden tumors or golden mice. Or even my good behavior. It is by grace we are saved through faith. And it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that's how God saves us. From God. He took the blame and placed it on Jesus. Scripture says he crushed him for my sin and for your sin. And that's the good news. So, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, you know my heart. My intention is not to frighten, not to be overly heavy. But God, your word says that your hand is heavy. It's heavy against sin. That you righteously mete out judgment and wrath. Because we've taken this good and perfect thing that you gave us, your creation, and we've screwed it all up with our selfishness, 
with our idolatry, with our hatred, our greed, our lust, and our coveting. God, if we were to examine ourselves, every single one of us has broken every bit of your law. And we deserve to have your heavy hand against us. But God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving him our punishment that we deserved. God, I pray that that would motivate us to love you more. That that would motivate people that don't know you to give their life to you. God, that that would motivate us that call ourselves Christians to obey you, to seek to follow you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. God, I thank you that you're a for real God and that we don't have to worship idols. We don't have to worship creation. We can worship the one who loved us so much that he made a way that we could get out of a penalty that we, poss- that we couldn't possibly pay. So God, I thank you for Jesus and it's in his name that we pray and it's because of him that we sing. Amen.